Let's pray together. Father, what a beautiful promise it is for us to remember that you wash all of our sins away. What a, what a true need that is for each and every one of us. Father, as we come into this moment, as we approach your holy word, we would pray that once again your spirit would meet us, remind us of this good news, this measure of grace that takes away our sins. Father, let us never presume upon that grace. Let us never take it for granted. Let us lean into our brokenness this morning in a way that helps us truly embody the, the meaning of that word, Hosanna. Save us, oh God. We thank you for a Christ, for a Savior who comes and meets us in our deepest need, and comes before us as a king, humble, lowly, and riding on a donkey. May we marvel at that humility today as we come to your word and ask that you would speak to us once again. We love you, Father, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. All right. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you so much, Allison, for leading us in that time of worship. Happy Palm Sunday, church. Everybody doing well this morning? Wasn't that fun seeing those kids walk down and get to celebrate Palm Sunday off to a great start? It's been a great weekend in our home. It's, I hope it's been a great weekend for you all. One of the reasons that there's been some extra excitement in our house, not just because of Palm Sunday, but tomorrow, uh, David Wu, my youngest son, will turn five, right? So pretty excited for little Wu. There's been a, a constant countdown going on in our home. Daddy, three more days, three more days, right? And he, he woke up today, Dad, one more day. And so he's super excited about it. Uh, so yesterday, I was doing some shopping for his birthday and uh, went to Mardell, the, the Christian bookstore. They had something there that we wanted to get him. And anytime I'm in Mardell, I don't know if you've been there recently, but if I ever have the opportunity to kind of swing by the t-shirt section, I always enjoy stopping and seeing the really lame, cheesy Christian t-shirts uh, that are out there. You guys know what I'm talking about. Like some of them are serious and some of them are kind of intense, but, but there became this like thing somewhere along the way where, where somebody thought, you know, let's take a common brand, a common logo, and just infuse it with some Christian terminology and imagery. And, and make t-shirts out of it. And I, I love it. I'm here to tell y'all I'm for it. And so let, just to give you some examples, took a couple pictures of a few that I saw yesterday just so that you understand what I'm referring to here. First one that I saw uh, yesterday at Mardell was this one. Do we have it? There we go. Major League Believer. Thought that was appropriate since the season just started. Gonna swing a cross instead of a bat. I don't know if that's biblical. Um, but then we also had another one here Fed up instead of FedEx. Give God control, not too bad. Couple others that I found online because then I just got excited to look at it. Let's go to the next few. Catch up with Jesus. Now what you can't see super well is it said, the Lord blesses me from my head to my toes. Do you see that? That's great, right? Go to the next one here. Mayo lights shine for Jesus. Spread it around, Matthew 5, 16. Uh, the next one, I like this next one. Pray pal. Not bad, not bad. Uh, I don't know about the next one, but I went ahead and shared it with you guys. Go to the next one. All the single ladies. I couldn't, I couldn't help myself. I had to show that one. 
And then one more that I thought was especially appropriate for me. Pastor warning, anything you say or do could be used in a sermon, right? Uh, Which, side note, I do want to offer a quick retraction from last week's message. Uh, After I finished speaking last week, James came to me and said, Dad, you know I don't listen to techno music. And I was like, okay, well, you know, you listen to a couple of songs. He's like, you can't let people think that that's my favorite song. Case in point, anything you say or do could be referenced in a sermon. So I needed to correct that. He, he has a much better taste in music. But all that to say, uh, we've seen these Christian t-shirts along the way. And I must confess to you, there was actually a time in my life where I was all in. Uh, I liked the Christian t-shirt, t-shirt and I wore them. Uh, and, and even though it's probably always embarrassing to wear a shirt like that, there was one particular moment that it was especially embarrassing and mortifying. I'm going to tell you this story uh, of that particular moment. I, I can't remember if I've shared this story before. I really can't. And so if I have, you get to hear it again. If, if I haven't, then you're in luck, okay? Uh, it's a longer story, but I felt like today we could use a longer story. So in order to appreciate what took place on this particular occasion, I need to tell you about some of the variables that were very critical in contributing to this moment, some of the ingredients that made this story somewhat unique. Uh, ingredient number one is the location. It took place in Abilene, Texas, my hometown. Uh, not a whole lot to, to say about Abilene, claim to fame for Abilene. It's the self-proclaimed storybook capital of the world. Uh, it's referenced in a George Strait song, All My Exes Live in Texas. And my personal favorite, it's the home of the first Taco Bueno. You're welcome. Okay, uh, So there, the biggest thing with Abilene and why this is an important part of the story is if you grow up in Abilene, you quickly discover there is nothing to do. Literally nothing to do. The lights flash at 10 p.m., like everything shuts down. So when you're a child and you grow up in Abilene, what that means is that you are often in charge of creating your own entertainment, which can be fairly troubling. Okay, so that's ingredient number one. Ingredient number two is based on a lot of scientific research. There have been numerous scientific studies that have arrived at this conclusion and have, have determined that when you study the male species, they reach at the high school age, the teenage years, the peak of stupidity, right? Like it is the moment where you are absolutely more inclined to embrace really dumb ideas. And so here's the thing. If a high school boy is by himself, there's a really good chance that maybe, maybe he won't follow through with those dumb ideas. But if you put other high school boys with him, the chances of them following through with those dumb ideas goes up exponentially because all of a sudden dumb ideas start to sound cool and hilarious when they're in a group. Okay, and so this particular occasion, uh, I was in high school, I was with a bunch of my other friends, and you put us in a town like Abilene where there's nothing to do, you have to come up with your own entertainment. We actually had a word for this, we called it ruckus, okay? So like, literally, this is how the conversation would go. We'd call each other up, we'd say, hey man, what are you doing tonight? I got nothing, I got nothing planned, what about you? I got nothing, wanna go cause some ruckus? And that's how it would begin, okay? Now the only chance to kind of potentially remedy this sort of following through of dumb ideas would be to introduce a female into the equation because then high school boys might think, I need to act cool. Uh, But on this particular night, there were no females present. It was just me and a group of my friends getting ready to go cause some ruckus, which leads to ingredient number three, a potato gun. I don't know if you know what a potato gun is, uh, but imagine about five feet of PVC pipe where you can cram a potato down the barrel end of the gun. In fact, I Googled it to try to find a picture, and they, I think they're now called potato cannons, if that gives you any idea. But you can stuff a potato down the end of it, and then at the base of it, you, you insert a, a flint 
and, and then you can unscrew the back, you, you uh, spray in some hairspray or something flammable, then you seal it really quick, you, you can flick the flint, and then the potato launches, and I mean launches, okay? And so we had all made one, and so one of my friends on this night when we're re- getting ready to go cause some ruckus brings this over and we're like, perfect, we have what we need to do. And, and we start taking this potato gun around, firing it at random spots of our town. Now we never aimed it at a person, we never aimed it at anybody's personal property, but I can't really confess that we were really using good judgment either, okay? So we're going around with a potato gun, which then leads to ingredient number four, a video camera, okay? This was the pre-smartphone era, if you will, okay? So this was not in a time where you had to fear everything being videoed. To have something videoed and captured on video was unique. And so my other friend brought a video camera. We're like, oh man, tonight's gonna be epic. We got potato guns, we got video cameras. We're gonna go cause some ruckus. And so that's what we started to do. We go around town, we have all these ingredients in play, and as we're just launching this potato gun at random spots and in different places, we see another group of my friends, about three of them, in a truck. And they were causing some ruckus of their own. I'm telling you all, man, Abilene, this is just what happens. And so we start to say, well, let's play the chase game, which was another thing that we used to do for fun, where we would actually chase each other and pretend like we were in some sort of high-speed chase, not exactly safe. All the high school parents, I'm sorry if I'm giving any example to your kids right now, but we would chase each other, and we're like, well, let's chase them. Let's see if we want to play the chase game. And so as we're trying to chase them, uh, they call us on their cell phone, and they explain to us, no, we we really can't play the chase game right now uh, because of what they had been up to. Well, what they had been doing that night is they had been setting fireworks off in other people's driveways. And, and not the ones that launch into the skies, but like the black cats, you know, the ones that just go pop, 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 pop. And so they were setting that off in other people's driveways. Little did they know, they had set it off in one driveway and it went off underneath a bedroom window for a little girl. And so as soon as it went off, she got upset, she started crying. Little did the, my friends know that that same house just about a week before had been broken into. So dad was unhappy, okay? Dad gets in the car and was trying to find my friends. So my friends were like, no, we're really trying to leave the neighborhood, and you should too. And so they are going out onto the main street. They get through an intersection. Uh, They make it through the light. We don't. The light stops. And right as we stop at the light is when we see the lights begin to flash behind our car. Uh, What we hadn't realized at the time was that dad had also called the cops. And so we start putting two and two together. Like, well, this officer's coming to get our friends who were setting off the fireworks We'll just explain to him, right, that it wasn't us. You know, no big deal. And so we pull over into my neighborhood, right? So just just put that into your mind there, right? We're getting pulled over by the cops in my neighborhood, just the street over from where I live. And, And I still am thinking this is not a big deal. My friend who was driving, Peter, he was starting to get a little panicked. He was starting to get a little uh, unnerved about it all. Of course, his dad was a local county judge, and so this wasn't a good look for Peter at all. And so he starts to panic. I'm like, Peter, don't worry. We'll just explain it. Everything will be fine. Pull us over, and they ask Peter to step out of the car, take him to the back of the car. We're still having a good time in the car. In fact, my friend with the video camera starts pretending like he's filming an episode of Cops, and and we're having a pretty good time with it all, when all of a sudden I hear Peter's voice kind of start to elevate Not exactly crying, but definitely more panicked as he starts saying, no, sir, please, sir, no, please don't. And I turn around, and they're putting him in handcuffs. That's when it starts to set in for me. And I was like, oh, 
this just got real serious. And so I lean my head out the driver's side door and I say, officer, officer, what, what are you doing? And he looks at me with a really stern look and goes, I'll be with you in just a minute. I was like, okay. So I lean back into the car and in a few moments, they come over to my side on the passenger side. He asked me to step out of the vehicle. He says, put your hands up on the car. And I'm literally getting patted down in my neighborhood, okay? His neighbors are like driving by and he says, do you have any weapons on you, son? And I say, no, sir, I've got a cell phone. And he says, this isn't funny, son. Do you have any weapons on you? And I was like, I just have a cell phone. I didn't know, you know? And so he starts patting me down and I said, officer, what in the world is this about? And he takes his light and he shines it in the back of the car and it falls on the potato gun. He says, you see that right there? I said, yes, sir. And he goes, that's a felony. I was like, oh. Now looking back, I actually don't think it is a felony. Uh, I think that was the line, right? I think that's what he was doing to scare us. But either way, it worked. And so he has me sit down on the curb next to Peter. And I sit down next to Peter and I'll never forget Peter's face, y'all. I mean, I'm telling you, he, he had that wide-eyed panic and he looks at me he's like we're going to jail we're going to jail and I was like Peter we're not going to jail they proceed to get the rest of my friends out of the car they search them they start searching the car at one point uh, the officer comes out with the video camera and he says am I going to find anything interesting on this and we didn't know how to answer that uh, <laughs> we were like we think it's funny we don't know how y'all will think about it uh, and really the great tragedy of the night was that they confiscated the video camera and we never got to see the footage. We're pretty sure it was pretty epic. Um, but they finished searching the car. All of us are sitting on the curb. Uh, again, they, they have seen at this point, these kids are not driving under the influence. They haven't been engaged in any other sort of illegal activity. We've scared them. And, and so now that we're all sitting there and their message has been received, he says the question that's the whole point of me telling the story. He says, tell me about your shirts. And I looked down and I realized that the majority of us were wearing Christian t-shirts. And he goes, you guys Christians? And I said, yes, sir. And he goes, then what in the world am I doing pulling you guys over and talking to kids like you? And then proceeded to give a really meaningful lecture about the importance of our actions matching our words. Right, and so it's a, it's a fun story for me to reflect upon. Definitely takes me back to some of the idiocy of high school. Very memorable, but it really was this moment that kind of crystallizes that, that truth that so many of us know, that what you do outwardly has to match inwardly. Right, that your conduct has to match your words. What we're talking about to a certain extent is this constant interaction with hypocrisy that can take place in our society. But the reality is, is that a lot of times when we think about hypocrisy, we tend to think about one particular group or one particular segment within Christendom, right? These, these hypocrites over here. But the reality is, is that all of us struggle with it because it's really about something deeper, right? It, it's really about this greater understanding that all of us are sinful. And at some point, whether you're 16 or 18 or 84, that sin is going to reveal itself and expose us for who we really are. And it's gonna remind us of this truth. There is no one righteous, not one. And that's the very point and the very case that Paul has been building upon and has been trying to make in this part of the letter of Romans. Let's take a look. Romans chapter two, 
And what I want you to be reminded of are some of the things that we've discussed up to this point. Last week, we had to deviate from our original plan. Uh, for those of you that weren't with us, uh, we had a special message last week where I had to take the opportunity to inform the church of Matt Bowen, our, our worship minister here, and his recent resignation. Uh, if you hopefully saw the letter uh, that we sent out this week as well that gave more information and details on that, if you haven't seen that letter, uh, then please let us know or also go back and watch the message from last week so that you can get the fullness of that story and the importance of everything that we just discussed. Uh, but last week, we, because of that news and that development, we actually went back to Romans 12 to talk about what does it mean to be a family and the importance of family in terms of pursuing renewal. Uh, but that meant that we had to kind of postpone what we were originally planning to look at last week. And so we're going to look at last week's verses and this week's verses together. So we have a lot that we're going to try to cover. Now, leading up to this part in chapter 2, if you just can kind of bring your memories back with me in terms of what we've covered in this journey so far. First part of chapter 1, 118 through 32, Paul is really addressing the plight of humanity Right, the problem of sin, that the, the manifestation of godlessness and wickedness by those who suppress the truth. And in particular, that seems to be focused predominantly on the Gentile audience of this church in Rome. Right, those more uh, inclined towards that sort of idolatrous behavior. But then you get to, to Romans chapter 2, and Paul kind of turns and says, but you who look upon them, right, you have no excuse. And now he's talking predominantly to the Jewish audience. You think you can escape God's judgment when you also are a mere human being? You can't escape God's judgment. And he begins to call into question even the Jews who thought that maybe that judgment didn't apply to them. Two weeks ago, we looked at verses 12 through 16 that really began to answer the question that was a part of that line of discussion, which is, how is it just, how is it fair for God to hold these Gentiles accountable to a law they never, they never received? Right? It's, it's very similar to the question that we often hear today. Is it right for a loving God to condemn people to hell who never had the chance to hear about Jesus? And those, those few verses, 12 through 16, really unpack a very important piece to that. And so we, we walked through that line by line a couple of weeks ago. And so that's the progression that Paul is on. Right, The, the Jews don't have any excuse either. Uh, here's why. God is just in condemning the Gentiles according to this law that's written on their hearts. And now he's continuing that argument into chapter 2, verse 17. We're going to read, starting in verse 17, through chapter 3, verse 20. It's a lot. So I just want you to dial in, right? It's story time for a moment. Stay focused on what we're going to read. I want to give you the assurance, though, we're not going to walk through all of this line by line. Because it's so much, we're going to do more of a flyby. Um, with these passages today. So it's important to me that you really focus in on what we're reading because we're just going to reference some kind of in broad strokes uh, to get through the message as a whole today. So let's pick it back up. Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 17. It says, Now, you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you're convinced that you're a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast 
in the law? Do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. So what advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. And what if some were unfaithful? Would their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. For as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is just. So what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. In the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we have become conscious of our sin. All right, there's a lot to unpack, but as I mentioned earlier, we're really just going to do more of a high-level flyby of all those verses. It's a lot to take in, but Paul is really making the same point over and over to kind of arrive at that declaration that we just read towards the end. And so the initial attitude that he's attacking when you look at verse 17 is this idea that the Jews believe that just because they had received God's word, right, just because they were his chosen people, that they had this idea, this mindset, that they were somewhat in a position of privilege and power and entitlement, right? That they were the ones that were going to be the guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness. They were the teachers of the world, right? They were the entrusted ones. And so Paul is attacking that attitude, saying, listen, if you're going to teach others, do you teach yourself? Or if you're going to say don't steal, do you steal? If you're going to claim don't commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Right? Time and time again, he's saying, are you even listening to the words that you're claiming you're responsible to teach? And he's hitting at that very 
uh, tendency within the human heart to be hypocritical, that our conduct, that our words don't always align and don't match. Now, he, he brings in another external marker of what it meant to be a Jew, which was the marker of circumcision, right? This was a very significant aspect to the Judaic identity because it draws you back to the very essence of the covenant with God and being a covenanted people. And so he, he builds on that. He says, so what happens when a Gentile who doesn't have that marker of circumcision actually honors the law more than a Jew? Will that not be credited to them? Right? And those that don't honor the law, even though they have that marker, that, that doesn't really equate them to being honorable to this covenant. Right? So, so Paul is pointing out that contradiction. He's saying, look, it's not enough to be a Jew outwardly. You have to be one inwardly as well. And he's speaking to that, that human tendency where our conduct and our words don't align. Right? And, and he uses this declaration in the middle of that description that to me is, is really the most powerful and the most weighty. It's because of you that God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles. And that's, that's a very chilling verdict. And it's something I think we can all attest to, right? This is not just a lesson for ancient Jews. This is something that we see on display time and time again in our context and culture as well. How many times do we see people assume the label as Christian or pastor or deacon or leader, whatever it is in this context, only to discover a numerous accounts of infractions of hypocrisy? Numerous times where people have stood on a stage saying, you shouldn't do this only to be found guilty of those very things. And how many times have we seen the dramatic and tragic fallout of such conduct? Man, it, it absolutely destroys churches. It destroys communities. It destroys people, right? And, and it's one of those things that we have to be mindful of and, and begin to ask ourselves, what is it that gives us that sort of tendency to succumb to that level of hypocrisy? What do we struggle with? Right? On one hand, I think part of the struggle is we don't even really know what we claim to believe. Right? So we'll grab a hold of the label Christian or evangelical or whatever, but we won't actually take the time to understand what Christ said. And so we will assume a label without even understanding the implications of what it really should embody for us and how we should actually live it out. And we'll let other voices, be it political voices or cultural voices or voices of influence, that that, that begins to shape what we think those terms mean. And they rarely align with Jesus and the words within the scripture. And the reason we succumb to that and begin to fall victim to it and listen to these other voices is because we don't know the scripture. Or maybe our motives are in the wrong place. Right? People will, will use that label for a certain credibility, for a certain audience, if it gives them any sort of pathway towards influence or power or, or notoriety or success. Right? There are numerous factors that can contribute to it, and we see it all the time. And so we have to be mindful of when it might be on display in front of us, and yet we also have to be mindful of when we might be the culprits and guard against some of those things. Because when we see that happen, that verse comes to life in our context today. God's name is blasphemed. It does tremendous damage to ourselves, to others, and to the kingdom. I've shared this with you not too long ago, just a couple of weeks, and all of my conversations that I've had recently within the last year or so with those who, who are not, um, what would I say, 
believers are, are not comfortable in church, one of the number one reasons is because of Christians. And that's heartbreaking. Right? So many people have walked from the faith because of this. People that claim something outwardly but live altogether differently. And the wounds that that creates. So we have to take it seriously. And that's a huge part of what Paul was trying to address. Now as he makes that, that assertion, he, he arrives at another place where he begins to anticipate a series of questions. Right Now that he's kind of put the Jews and the Gentiles on equal plane, he, he anticipates one question. So is there any advantage to being a Jew? And his, his answer really, if you keep reading, is kind of like, yes, maybe. Sort of, not really. And, and he's answering it the first time here in the, in the end of chapter 2, the first part of chapter 3, right? He says, is there any advantage then to being a Jew? Well, much in every way, they've been entrusted with the very words of God. And he acknowledges that, that the law first came to the Jews. And, and in maybe a more indirect way, he's acknowledging that the word of God, the word becoming flesh, Jesus, came to the Jews. So there is a certain benefit of, of hearing it first, receiving it first, but the end result is the same. They remain unfaithful. Right? They don't adhere to it. And so that anticipates the next question. Well, if they're unfaithful and, and people dishonor this law or they break this covenant, well, what will God do? Will God be unfaithful to it? Will he uphold his end of the agreement? And, and Paul's assertion is yes. God absolutely remains faithful because that's who he is. That's his character. That's his nature. Right? And I love that, that succinct phrase there. Let God be found true and every human being a liar. Right? That's what we get a chance to anticipate. There, there's not going to be a moment where we begin to look upon God on that day where we see, oh, God was the one that was unfaithful. God was the one that was in the wrong. God will be found true. It's, it's the human condition that will be found. We were the ones that were unfaithful. And yet, despite our unfaithfulness, God remains faithful, which then leads to this third question. Well, if that's true, and if my wrongdoing, my evil lifestyle just promotes and exalts God's faithfulness, then can I just continue in that evil lifestyle? Right? Can I just go on sinning so that grace may increase? Now, this is a question that he returns to later in the letter. So he doesn't address it in full here, but he at least answers it quickly. And this is a question that to me really resonates to my own personal story. As I've shared with you before, my journey to understanding Jesus, because I grew up in a Christian town in a Christian home, man, the idea of getting heaven, I was all in on that. Absolutely, I, I get a savior that forgives me for my sins, sign me up. But the way I interpreted that was, that means I just get to live however I want. And I'll just ask for forgiveness. Right, I'll just ask for it whenever I want to ask for it. And if Jesus comes back one day, I'll be like, hey, yeah, I believed in you. Can you forgive me for all the things I've done? And I'll get to go to heaven. Right, that's taking that grace for granted. That's presuming upon God's grace. And the scriptures are very clear. God cannot be mocked. You will reap what you sow. Or in Romans 3.8, if that's your way of thinking, here's Paul's short answer before he unpacks it later. If that's what you think, you can just live an evil lifestyle so that God can be exalted, your condemnation is just. Right? So he goes through those series of questions that were really kind of slight um, deviations from his main point. And, and I recognize this is heavy, and there's probably some of you out there going, God, this is Palm Sunday, Jeremiah, and you're just bringing 
the heaviness of hypocrisy. What? Why? And I want to explain to you why. Because I, I really want us to think about Holy Week and really what this triumphal entry was all about. Right? I, I get that it's, it's the Sunday that typically calls us into celebration and we get to smile and we do the palm branches thing and we shout Hosanna and all these different things and celebrate Jesus coming into Jerusalem as king. But I want us to really be mindful of what that actually initiated and what took place. The day that we often celebrate with joyful praise, let me remind you of some of the things that are referenced in the Gospels, specifically Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And though the details vary between those, those three, you do have a lot of the same points referenced. And what Luke tells us is that right after this triumphal entry, where Jesus is adorned with praise and all these people lay down their palm branches and they shout, Hosanna, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know what Jesus does? He weeps. According to the Gospel of Luke, he weeps. He weeps over the city because he realizes they don't recognize God coming to them. See, I think part of what he sees, not just in that moment, but what transpires over the next few days is that Jesus is venturing straight into the unfaithfulness of humanity, right? Because those crowds that were shouting Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Jesus is likely aware that in just a few days' time, those shouts would move from Hosanna to crucifying. He's looking at these disciples who had been with him, every step of the way, and we're likely there on that day enjoying this adoration, this praise, walking alongside him, and he knew that in a matter of a few days, they would all leave him, every single one of them. One would betray, one would disown, and he would face those final moments on his own. Right, examples in the crowds and even his own disciples of those who in that moment were saying one thing but would ultimately do another. But it doesn't stop there. What does he do after he arrives at Jerusalem? The first place he goes, according to the Gospels, is the temple. Now remember what the temple was. The temple was the center of the Judaic identity. Right? It, it was the center of everything. It was, just, it was more than just the religion. It was the government. It, it, was, it was the cultural bedrock of Judaic life. It was the source of economy and economic development. I mean, it was, it was everything, and it was controlled by the religious elite, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders. And what does Jesus do? He walks into that temple and he starts throwing over tables because they were saying one thing and doing another. And he attacks it head on because of the mockery that they had made. He says, this is supposed to be a place of prayer, and you've made it a den of robbers. It's confronting the unfaithfulness of humanity. And it's really clear. If the thoughts were not already in place up to that moment, man, they were solidified then because it's referenced over and over again that from that moment on, the teachers of the law, the elders, the chief priests, they wanted to kill him. And, and I want us to recognize, like it was the direct assault on the powerful elite and everything that was keeping them in power, which is why they wanted to kill him. Right? And so they, they make that effort. They make that known that they're going to try to kill him. So now they're antagonistic towards him. They keep trying to trap him with different questions. They keep trying to ask him, well, how about taxes to Caesar? Who's going to be married to who at the resurrection? They come forward with all these different things, and it's a constant attack against him. 
He even ends up in another place in the next few days where he gives this discourse about the end times, right? Reminding them again, hey, people are gonna come before you claiming that they're me, claiming that they're the one. Don't listen to them, they're going to deceive you. He makes that claim, but what prompted that whole discourse was the disciples looking at the temple and saying, look at how beautiful it is. Look at this outward adornment. And Jesus, again, knowing what's coming, saying this outward adornment doesn't match the wretchedness within. And all of these stones are gonna be torn down. Right? Holy Week is a reminder that Jesus marched straight into the unfaithfulness of humanity. Perhaps Palm Sunday in the temple in the next few days, more than any other week, remind us with very vivid pictures and examples of what Paul has just said in Romans 3.9, there is no one righteous, no, not one. And that's exactly what Jesus came to confront. You see Paul declare that in Romans 3, there's no one righteous, no one who understands No one who seeks God. And that's so true of what transpires in Holy Week. Nobody understood what he was there to do. They couldn't see that God had come to them. They weren't actually seeking God. They were seeking a better life. They were seeking freedom from Rome. They were seeking luxury, comfort, whatever it was. But they weren't seeking God. No one who does good. And this is Paul's whole point. No one is righteous. And look at the lengths to which Paul goes to make that point. He starts quoting all these different lines from different psalms, a numerous amount of psalms. Then he uses specific lines to refer to different parts of the body, right? Your eyes, your mouth, your feet, right? All these different parts that engage in sinful behavior, poison, deceit, ruin, marks their ways. All these different descriptions to explain this total depravity, this total sinfulness that exists in the human heart. And that's what Jesus was confronting. And so it leads Paul to this conclusion at the end. Right, so after all of this work, he he arrives at this place to say Jew and Gentile are alike. They're all under the same law, whether it was given to them or whether it was written on their hearts. And so on that day, When we stand before God, our mouths will be silenced. There is nothing we can say. Our mouths will be silenced before him in the whole world. Not just the Jews, not just the Gentiles. Every single heart will be held accountable to God. And what we'll discover is that no one will be found righteous by the works of the law. You can't earn it. There is nothing any of us can do. What the law has done is awaken our hearts to the consciousness of sin. I realize that's a heavy passage, but to me it is the perfect passage for Holy Week, right? It's the perfect passage for us to finish this journey to the cross because when we fully 
understand that verdict, what we should walk away with is a greater understanding that every single one of us, none of us gets to point fingers. No one gets to label a certain group or segment. All of us are guilty of this sin and this brokenness. We deserve death. We deserve condemnation. We deserve the penalty and the punishment. We deserve a cross. What we need is rescue. What we need is a new way. What we need is a savior. Palm Sunday is that powerful reminder that the savior is on his way. And those shouts, Hosanna, are exactly what they're designed to be. Lord, save us. And what we get to see when we move into Palm Sunday and Holy Week and into Easter, what I want us to all lean into is the incredible good news of this gospel that this Jesus marches into the unfaithfulness of humanity and remains faithful. He remains faithful to the point of death, even death on a cross, and he washes all of our sins away. (laughs) What good news. And so maybe the song that we need to sing on this Palm Sunday is one that draws us into that desperation and that need, right? That our shouts of Hosanna, God, save us, is a way for us to declare to one another and to sing to him, Lord, we need you. We confess our need for you. You are our one defense. You are our righteousness. Oh, God, how we need you. May that be our prayer as we enter into what is truly a holy, gracious week in anticipation of Resurrection Sunday. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do need you. And I I pray, God, that you would help every single one of us that are here in your midst this morning, God, that have had the opportunity to gather in your presence, to acknowledge and confess our broken ways, our sinful hearts. God, our our propensity, our potential to be unfaithful. God, the tendencies that we have to consistently go the way that we shouldn't. Father, help us to embrace a humility that comes before you, humbly bowing, and once again acknowledging our need for you. God, help us to complete this journey towards the cross, mindful of all the incredible things that you did for us. Let us approach it with reverence. Let us approach the cross with humility and with a desire for grace. Let us approach the cross once again, mindful of your everlasting love that meets us not by merit, not by achievement, but in our shame, in our weariness, in our brokenness, and says, I'm gonna wash all your sins away. Help us to celebrate this morning with gratitude and eager anticipation that you truly are 
our one defense. We have none other that we can claim. So let us claim the defense of this gospel. Father, let us rest once again in knowing that you take all of our sin and you give us all of your righteousness. That our righteousness is not found in anything other than Jesus. And as we are mindful of these things, Father, give us the strength, the resolve, the wisdom to know how to live lives that reflect an understanding of such truth. Not that we would be perfect, but through the humility of our brokenness, we can consistently claim the grace and forgiveness of a triumphant king. We love you, Father, and we need you. Come save us once again. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.